Another week of the NFL season is in the books, and with that week, another team has left the ranks of the undefeated with the Cincinnati Bengals losing in Monday night football to the Houston Texans in an unexpected loss that left not only the Bengals wondering what happened, but me wondering what happened to my DraftKings team with Andy Dalton as quarterback. I now welcome in my co-host Mark Schofield. And Mark, this that was that was a tough one for me, I'll tell you that much. This was just a, a strange week in the NFL, and it got off to a really strange start on Thursday night. You had that Bills-Jets game, and both teams in those color rush uniforms, and there were people who couldn't even see no, because you- of their red-green color blindness. They couldn't tell what was going on on the field, and it just kind of snowballed from there, man. I mean, you've got that game on Thursday night, Peyton Manning benched. We've got, like you said, the Bengals losing to Houston in a 10-6 game. It was just a strange week overall. Now, oh, and of course, Cam Newton scores a touchdown, and now you've got angry women writing off letters to the editor about how this is his touchdown dance doesn't have a place in sports. It's just, just a crazy week all around. It really was, and uh, nothing was crazier than the injury situation that we saw during this weekend. So we are actually going to go to our first guest simply because I know he has some injuries he has to cut open little bit later on today and we're proud to be joined by Dr. for Christopher Geary he is the chief of sports medicine at Tufts Medical Center also you can follow him on Twitter at Chris Geary Ortho and Dr. Geary it's good to have you in again this week hey how you guys doing we're doing well let's start first with uh the the Peyton Manning injury and we've heard a number of different opinions that are out Which there <laughs> let's go with the foot because obviously okay. that's the one that the uh the broncos yeah. are talking about most notably tell us a little bit about what this injury actually is so you know it sounds if you're well if you believe what they're saying um he said like he was dealing with plantar fasciitis which is inflammation of the uh the soft tissue in the bottom of the foot basically um you know soft tissue structure in the bottom of the foot and it's very common it'll get inflamed or painful and a lot of patients have it it's painful like first step out of bed in the morning and things like that but he the another thing he's got a partially torn one which is that can be very painful um and actually you know i think someone had was it his brother that had a fully torn one um where basically when the when the, when the soft tissue completely tears there's no tension on it anymore and doesn't hurt but when it's partially torn it can be very painful and it can be painful when you push off on it step down on it so you can certainly see how that would affect his throwing mechanics. And um, that's the kind of thing that's likely, short of it actually rupturing fully, he's likely to be dealing with that on some level for probably the rest of the season. So um, that's going to be one of the, that's one of those injuries you kind of manage and don't completely get rid of during a season. So there's, there's no type of treatment that you can do in order to, there's no surgical option to, to deal with that and have him back up in four to six weeks or anything like that? Really, I mean, the surgical option is to completely release the the rest of the of the of the fascia, oh. um, and that's more that you know they, that's not something he'd probably come back from that quickly. And it's not said that's kind of like your last final bailout. Uh, over time, if you rest it and you wear a boot and stuff like that, um, and do some physical therapy for it, it you certainly quiet down that inflammation, and hopefully, it kind of scars in, and that torn portion is kind of filled in with scar tissue. But uh, you know, short of actually having that surgery, which is probably un, it's not terribly compatible with coming back this season from. So, Doctor, there was another injury that popped up this weekend, and that was to Patriots wide receiver Julian Edelman. Uh, left yep. for the game against the Giants with a was reported a broken bone in his foot. It actually looks like it's something called the Jones fracture. Now, what is that? I guess he had surgery. What can we expect or Patriots fans expect from him for the rest of the season, perhaps? Right. The, uh, 
the term Jones fracture gets thrown around a lot. Basically, it's kind of a it's a fracture of the fifth metatarsal, and that there's a number of different zones in that of that bone that we talk about getting fractured, like zone one, zone two, zone three. And it's different. The treatment's different. It's zone one injury is a non-operative injury. It's akin to a bad sprain almost. Uh, two is usually not operated on. And what he probably has a three, which is kind of a tr- what we call a true Jones fracture, which is a little further down the bone. It's an area that is prone to not healing if it's not treated surgically because uh, it's an area that doesn't have a, a great blood supply. So the idea with the surgery is you put the screw in that applies compression across the fracture site and increases healing. Um, in his case, he had an acute injury, and it's, there's a differentiation there between an acute injury and kind of a stress fracture. And some patients will have this kind of prodromal symptoms where they have pain in the foot and they're not really sure why, and then all of a sudden their foot breaks. A lot of times it's a relatively atraumatic thing, and you see that in some, and that's happened in some athletes, um, especially the ones that have more problematic fifth metatarsal fractures. Like I think it was Julio Jones had a screw put in, and then he had another one. He missed a fair amount of time from that. Um, but in Edelman's case, where it's an acute injury, where they put the screw in, it's reasonable to expect that he'll be back in some fashion within six to eight weeks. Um, there have been a couple, of, you know, there was one study looking specifically at NFL players um, with this fracture that had surgery, and the average time to return to play was 8.8 weeks. Um, and that was a little bit of an older study, so with newer techniques and some maybe some adjuvants, like, you know, Des Bryant had the same injury, and they used a PRP injection and a stem cell injection, all these kind of biological adjuvants that we use to try to goose up the healing, um, he may, you know, he's probably on the lower end than 8.8 weeks, I would, I would hope, certainly. Chris, one of uh, the, the key aspects of Julian Edelman's game is his quickness. Is this the type of injury that will likely affect that coming out of recovery, or is it the type of thing that isn't necessarily going to see any long-term impact? Long-term, I would say no, assuming it heals up fine and, um, you know, it gets back from it. In the short term, you know, that's it really depends a lot on on how fast it heals and how, how confident he is, um, you know, with cutting and planting off that foot. Because obviously, you know, his game is predicated on, you know, very quick movements and short cuts and, and quickness, like you said. Um, so if that's the kind of thing where if he comes back and the foot feels great, then even in the short term you might not see any real fall off aside from the usual kind of knocking the rust off after six to eight weeks out. But um, if he has any kind of residual pain or he doesn't really trust the foot, you know, in the short term, you might, you know, that might be the kind of thing that might affect him. And, you know, watching Des Bryant, you know, there's been kind of conflicting reports, conflicting opinions as to how he's looked in terms of his game. And obviously he's very, very explosive and fast. And, you know, with, um, you know, he's got, yeah, I saw, watched him last week and he, you know, there's a scrum down in the end zone, basically he jumped up and he looked great doing that. But the question is, you know, is that something that he's, that's sustainable and is it the kind of thing that Edelman's going to be able to do? And the hope is obviously he comes back and he feels great with the foot and he can kind of, you know, jump right back in where he left off. But, you know, you're always going to you see him actually out there and watch how he can, you know, make cuts and how quick he is. You're not really going to completely know that. And, and does that screw, does that stay in there for the remainder of this season pretty much, or is that going to be removed at some point? Oh, yeah, it'll definitely stay in. And um, it's the kind of thing he, you know, there's a good chance he might just, that might stay in forever. Um, it's kind of, a, you know, basically it's there to help the healing. And then after that, it's kind of along for the ride. There's no particular need to take that screw out. Um, unless it's, you know, sometimes it can cause some soft tissue irritation if it's prominent, but usually with the technique they use to put it in, it's pretty recessed, and so it doesn't actually really rub on much of anything. So the odds of him having that taken out at any point during his career are probably pretty low. 
Very good. Well, Dr. Geary, I know you have some people to help out later today, so we will let you go so that you can get scrubbed in and ready to work. And we appreciate your time as always, all right? Awesome, guys. Talk to you soon. Dr. Christopher Geary, from uh, he's the Chief of Sports Medicine at Tufts Medical Center, and he also is really the go-to resource on Twitter if you are ever interested in anything injury-related from really the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, just about anything you want to look at, and you can follow him on Twitter at Chris Geary Ortho. And, and, and Mark, obviously, let's spin back just to that Manning injury for a, a brief minute here because obviously one of the worst games of Peyton Manning's career, and it appears that we may finally know why. Yeah, I'm, and, you know, Dr. Geary talked about it a little bit. And, you know, when you have this sort of injury and it does affect the lower body mechanics. And, you know, we've been wondering, you know, throughout the season, is something wrong with his arm strength? Obviously, the, the neck injury and the nerve endings and the inability to grip the football. Well, now there's another component to that where, okay, this is a guy that's suffering with an upper body injury, needs some lower leg drive to help generate power on throws. Well, with this injury, it's kind of tough to do that. So the pieces kind of fit together now and gives us a little bit more context to what Peyton Manning's been dealing with this year. Yeah, and uh, I believe I, I quote the great Herb Brooks when I say the legs feed the wolf. And there in you this, go. In this case, the legs were not feeding the wolf, and now we have, uh, we're going to get a look at Brock Osweiler in there for the Broncos, at least for the next week or so, but... Let's, uh, let's dig into the last weekend of football, and in particular, one of the more surprising results that we had, and, and look, we, we had a few. I mean, this, this was a week that really didn't go according to plan. Let's talk first about uh, the Lions-Packers game, because this was a divisional matchup that I don't think a lot of people gave the Lions that much of a chance in, largely due to, A, they're not very good, and B, it was on the road at Lambeau Field, which is always a tough place to play. What did you see that, that really gave them an edge on either side of the ball? Well, I think, you know, I took a look at this game this morning, and you and I actually talked about it a little bit before we came in and record this. But in, in terms of what Green Bay is trying to do offensively, they've got a couple of problems now that when you add them together, they kind of spell doom for a passing game. Now, Rodgers threw for 325 yards, which at first glance you think, oh, you know, that, that's a good number to put up. But it was on 61 attempts. I mean, that works out to something like 5.1 yards per pass and attempt, which, you know, in a small sample, that's well low, much lower than, you know, the worst team in the league right now, the Houston Texans. They're last in the league on yards per pass attempt for, you know, 6.4 yards on attempts. So what, what you got on this Packers offense, you've got some protection problems that are leading Rodgers to have sort of happy feet in the pocket. He's not quite settled back there. He's always moving those feet around, ready to bounce, ready to vacate the pocket. You add into that, the receivers are having a little, well, take a step back, happy feet in the pocket. He's not thrown off of his base. That causes problems in terms of accuracy. Then when you have receivers that can't get separation, you add all those things together and it's leading to missed opportunities in the passing game. Yeah, and, and I was watching this game this morning, actually, just to make sure that I had gone through everything here. And for me, you know, as you mentioned, look, it, it didn't seem like receivers were getting a ton of separation. And in particular, the, the Lions' defense seemed to be doing a great job of, of scheming to really take away what Green Bay wants to do in a lot of situations. Anything over the middle was covered, was usually double covered. You had two guys there that were just right on the ball, and even if the guy was making a catch, no yards after the catch at all, and anything deep was pretty much taken away. It was all out of underneath to the outside of the field, and that's really all that I saw open for Green Bay in a lot of situations, and as you said, 
when there were some some players open, either A, an inaccurate pass, or B, I saw a couple drops out there as well. Yeah, and they, they had an up, Green Bay had a chance to make a couple of plays in the vertical passing game, especially early. They had a chance for a nine route, a go route to get to Devontae Adams. Yep. Rodgers missed it. Uh, seven route, a corner route again to Adams early in the first quarter. They missed that as well. Um, there was a pivot route, um, I think, late or mid-first quarter to uh, Cobb. Rodgers thrown again off his base. He can't get his feet set. Throws just off the mark, and it's dropped. And when you've got a problem getting separation, you know, it's one of these things where if Rodgers wasn't getting his feet set and the throws were kind of off the mark, but yet receivers had room to make catches, had separation, they could haul those in. But now when you've got a defender kind of draped on you, the throws a little bit off the mark because of the happy feet in the pocket, it all kind of adds together and just snowballs. Yeah, and have you had you seen any of that from Rodgers in earlier games this year? I, I don't know if that's something. Obviously, in the, in the Broncos game two weeks ago, uh, the Broncos defense was putting a ton of pressure on the Green Bay offense. Is that something that crept up then, or was that really this game? Yeah, I'm, we saw a little bit of that. You know, if you go back and look at that Denver tape, you saw the, that start to sort of manifest. You know, Denver's got a pretty good pass rush. They were able, able to generate pressure at times. And, you know, Detroit did a lot of the same things that Denver did. They mixed it up. They would bring pressure. They would blitz seven and drop and just play cover one in the back. Yep. Or they'd show blitz and then just drop into a cover two shell. So Rodgers was kind of trying to have to guess to see what's going on. And then when you add in all the other concerns, it makes things hard on an offense. Does this, and I know there's a lot of overreaction that tends to happen uh, along the course of an NFL season. Does this really just speak to the fact of how hard it is for teams to be at their best game in and game out? Because, look, you and I both know that Aaron Rodgers is still one of the best quarterbacks in the league. It's just occasionally, for one day, you can slip into bad habits like this. Right, and I think you're exactly right. It is incredibly hard to win a game in the NFL. I mean, that's just stayed at the, at the outset. I mean, these are the best athletes in this sport playing at an absolutely elite level. You add into the fact that it's a divisional game, familiar opponents, obviously Detroit. Maybe, yeah, they're having a down season, but they'd love nothing more than to go into Lambeau Field and, you know, kind of punch the Packers in the mouth. And that's what they did. I mean, we saw this last year. We saw, you know, obviously the New England Patriots got off to a slow start. They had that debacle on Monday night against the Chiefs. Yep. People were saying, that's it. This team, they're not good. They are done. The Tom Brady era is over. There are even talks about trading Tom Brady. Yep. <laughs> they write the ship pretty quickly. So, you know, Green Bay, they've got now, they've got these, this three-game stretch where they haven't looked good. They get another chance this week. Now they have to play the Vikings, and now they're not in first place in that division right now. So it's a big test for them. I'd look for them to bounce back here with a big game this weekend. Yeah, and that is going to be on the road against Minnesota. So that'll be something interesting to watch to see if there is a slight changing of the guard there in uh in the nfc north let's let's spin over to the west though just so that we don't get accused of any east coast bias here uh talking about the nfc west big matchup between the arizona cardinals and the seattle seahawks seattle obviously been an up and down team so far this year they've had some games where look the defenses look great they've had others where the defense has kind of kind of been a mixed bag what was interesting here is the the seattle offense really hadn't done anything so far this year, it was one of the lowest scoring offenses in the league. Puts up 32 points against the uh, the Cardinals defense here. What did you see from this game? Yeah, if you, if you want to, we just use you just use the phrase sort of the 
shift in the balance of power in respect to the NFC North. We might have seen that kind of play out in that fourth quarter of this game. And we had Danny Kelly from Field Goals on on the podcast last week, talked about the importance of this game for Seattle. This was a home game for them on Sunday night. And there was a sequence where, you know, the Cardinals had the lead. They had the football. They're up 25-17. And then you get a strip sack of Carson Palmer. Seahawks recover it, punch it in on the next play. Ensuing Cardinals drive. Another strip sack return for a fumble, and in the blink of an eye, suddenly Carolina, I mean, excuse me, not Carolina, the Cardinals are on the road, they're down by four, and you'd think, knowing what you've seen from the Seahawks in years past, this is now a position where this team's this defense is going to close out this game, they're going to force a three and out, yep. Seattle will probably have a long touchdown drive capped off by a Marshawn Lynch touchdown run, that's what you'd expect, that's what we've seen in years past, but instead, Arizona goes right down the field, get a big touchdown drive they get a a penalty i think and a third down conversion that extends the drive and then palmer gets flushed out of the pocket finds javon brown on the scramble drill next play seam seam route to uh, jermaine gresham for a touchdown against that cover three defense palmer drops it in perfectly right over both cam chancellor and earl thomas touchdown they regain the lead you know and then they their defense made a big stop. They forced Russell Wilson. He had a really head-scratcher of an intentional ground in that forced Seattle to punt. Arizona caps it off with another long touchdown run on a Andre Ellington run on a draw play. And then, in blink of an eye, that, that division might be over. What, what exactly was it that allowed Arizona to be so successful here? Because you have a Seahawks defense that was first in the, against the pass last year, second against the pass this year in terms of just yardage given up. What ex- is, is it the receivers? I mean, obviously Larry Fitzgerald has been having an outstanding year for them. Michael Floyd coming on strong as well. H- what, what were they scheming that, w- that was allowing this to open up? What I want to kind of point to is on that that second touchdown drive of the fourth quarter when they extended their lead. When um, there was, a, they faced a third down, and earlier on one of the two strip sacks, it was just a simple a gap blitz that Arizona missed. While Air, um, Seattle runs that same a gap blitz again on this third down play, and Andre Ellington in the running back in the backfield yep. comes across the formation and cut KJ Wright. You know, cuts him down to the turf, gives Carson Palmer an extra second or two to find, um, I think it was, again, Javon Brown on an out route to keep that drive alive. So it was sort of the ability to see what had worked against them and make quick adjustments on the fly by Bruce Arians, you know, who looks to be a great offensive mind here. Um, the ability to do that, keep Carson Palmer upright in the pocket, settle down that pass rush, the things that had worked for Seattle, that allowed them to make the plays late in that fourth quarter. And they, the touchdown run, the draw to Allenton as well, yep. they ran that right at rookie Frank Clark, the defensive end out of Michigan. Draw play run right at him. Clark, aggressive, tries to get upfield, thinking it's a pass, and runs right by Allenton. And then he dances down the sidelines for a 48-yard touchdown. Yeah, and you look at the uh, the remainder of that Cardinals schedule here. You've got the Bengals coming up, uh, 49ers, Rams, Vikings, Eagles, Packers, and Seahawks. So still some tough games there, but at least at this point, they certainly have an edge. They're three games ahead uh, in the NFC West here. And, you know, look, look to have that division relatively under control right now. Would you say that's would you say that's true, Mark? Well, I mean, if you think about what's going on in that division right now, I mean, what do you have in St. Louis and San Francisco? Not a whole lot. <laughs> you've got you've got Case Keenum and you've got Blaine Gabbert now taking snaps. Yeah, yeah. So 
Yeah, so that that tells you pretty much all you need to know there. And and barring a collapse, the Cardinals should end up, uh, I don't want to say running away with the division, but comfortably finishing in first place there. So let's uh, let's move now to, we, we've pushed this segment back here in, in the podcast, but it is always our favorite one. And I think we pushed it back because uh, we do have a new sponsor for our Offensive Play of the Week, correct? We do. It's it's an exciting day here at Inside the Pylon. We have our second sponsor for the uh, Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Game. And wouldn't you know, it's Stamper Oil. Wow. The man himself. The good Isn't folks at Stamper Oil. Now, do they have a uh, – what's what's their tagline? Do they have this anything? Is, this is the first piece of copy they gave us, okay? Uh, try it out here. It's Stamper Oil, helping you drill deep. I like it. I like, I like it. it a lot. I uh, like it a lot. One, huh? what, what do we have for the, uh, the first play with them as a sponsor? Well, you know, it, it kind of takes us in a different direction in this segment. Usually we talk about big passing plays, long throws down the field in the vertical passing game. Well – Sometimes it's the little things that can mean the difference between a win and a loss. And we saw that play out at MetLife Stadium with the Patriots trying to keep their undefeated record alive. And they've got a last-minute, two-minute warning type situation where they need to get into field goal range. And they're facing a second down and 10. They're just outside uh, Gustowski's field goal range. They need probably another five or six yards to kind of get into a safe range for him. And they kind of, you know, they're running two-by-twos. Um, they've got Danny Amendola in a slot, tight slot on the left, and they've got the Giants. Do they've got their nickel packaging? They've got Wade, a defensive back. He's lined up and he's kind of over Amendola, but he's cheated a little bit to the inside. Okay, and it looks like he might blitz. And so pre-snap, I listened to this audio. Obviously, when it was live, I was watching the game, and then went back and tried watched the broadcast footage of it. I couldn't tell if Brady actually indicated, you know, 31's the mic if he did one of those, but he was definitely pointing out Wade because when he blitzes, Amendola releases vertically and then just cuts off his route. Yeah. And Brady gets a snap. He's looking towards Amendola the entire way, the entire way, gets the ball out quickly. Now. What's important about how that comes together is we talk about, you know, what quarterback stats and PFF ratings and what makes a great play in the passing game. And sometimes people want to talk about, oh, pushing the ball vertically. Well, here, Brady gets it out quickly and he gets it out perfectly thrown to Amendola and it allows him to make a move after the catch. It's only a four-yard route. Yep. But what happens is because of the blitz, there's a little soft spot in that zone before the linebacker rotates and the safety, Landon Collins, comes over as well. Where when Amendola makes the reception, he's got his back to these two defenders. He has enough time to show a quick little fake to the outside. He turns that right shoulder towards the sideline like he might angle to try to get out of bounds. There's 19 seconds left. There's no timeouts. So these defenders are collapsing on him. They see that little turn. They overrun it. So they run past him to the sidelines as Amendola cuts back towards the middle of the field, up the field, gets close to the first down marker, but more importantly, gets them past that sort of field goal target line, gives the offense time to get up, spike the football, and then kickers do like what like you did in the past, man, do what they do best and drill game winners. Well, let me tell you, the longest, the longest field goal that I ever had, and this was in practice or a game, was 56 yards. It didn't look anything like the 54-yarder that Steven Goskowski put through because I, I pretty much bounced it over the crossbar from 56. It's good in the scorebook, though, right? It, look, it always counts for three points. That's all that yep. matters at the end of the day. But definitely, without the uh, without this play from Amendola, we're not getting there. So it, uh, you know, obviously, look, it's you know not the biggest pass play in terms of distance here, but there's no doubt that it was an incredibly important one for this uh, this game and this weekend. And we're going to move now to our second guest of the day. We are joined by Nath Pizzolatto, 
from zonereads.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at zonereads. And Nate, appreciate having you on today. Hey, thanks for having me. How are y'all? We're doing pretty well, and uh, we, we haven't had enough Saints talk recently, so we felt it was time <laughs> to kind of dig into what was going on uh, down south and see what was happening uh, you know, down in New Orleans. What have you yeah. seen in particular? I know that when we last talked, you, you were kind of excited to see what was going to happen with a lot of the rookies on this Saints team. What has been the general view uh, of that rookie class so far? Um, I'd, say, I'd say the general view is that uh, it's pretty solid for a rookie class, uh, much better than any of the ones in previous years. Um, you've, got, you've got a handful of players who are already contributing a lot. Uh, Stefan Anthony and Holy Kikaka are already important parts of the defense, and they both played pretty well. Kikaka is dealing with an ankle injury the last couple games, and that's hurt, but those guys have done well. Um, Anders Pete looked fine when he had to play, but he only got to play very briefly on uh, one game for Taron Armstead before he went out with an ankle injury. Um, yeah, they, they seem to have done a lot. You know, they're still rookies. There's still a lot of growing pains, obviously. But between um, between the draft picks, guys like, you know, those guys and Damian Swan and a couple of the undrafted free agents they added, like Bobby Richardson or a guy like Delvin Bro, who wasn't subject to the draft process because he's coming from Canada, but is technically a rookie still. Um, they've added a lot of talent. You know, their mistakes, their growing pains. But, you know, this rookie class seems like one of the better ones we've had in a long time. Probably not coincidentally after they cleaned out the scouting department after last year's draft disaster. One of the guys that stands out to me when I watch New Orleans is linebacker Stephon Anthony. Every time I watch them on film, it seems like he's all over the field making plays. What have you seen from him, and are you excited about his potential going forward? Oh, very much. Yeah, I think think you're right on there. He's, He's a great combination of athleticism and instincts. He's able all over the field making plays. He's great in coverage, too, already, which is really impressive there um uh i should remember what the footage was i think it's also i mean early early in the year even like i think the cardinals game was the first one of the year there's footage of him doing a great uh you know it's a you know great coverage of guys like andre ellington out of the backfield and so you know speedy guys not so guys i'm really excited for him i think they really found a gem there he's going to be one of the better middle linebackers in the league for some time Really excited to see what he can do. Yeah, and, and, and Nath, when we look at this class, part of what we have to remember is that obviously, uh, you know, they, they spent a high pick on Garrett Grayson, uh, quarterback out of Colorado State, a third mm-hmm. round pick there. So that's someone that with Drew Brees at this point back in the lineup, even though he's you know, a little banged up clearly, you're not necessarily yeah. going to see any return on that pick for a couple of years potentially. No, I don't think so. I don't think they want him to play at all this year if they can avoid it. You know, Luke McCown was injured. Uh, was it last week, I think, and uh, was out for the year, and they went and signed Matt Flynn to be the backup. So I think the goal is to you know just try to avoid getting uh, Grayson any exposure for the first year or two, let him uh, you know, learn from the sidelines till they feel he's ready to take over. What, what about uh, uh, what are we seeing uh, in terms of defensively? Obviously, uh, we saw some big news come down this week with uh, defensive coordinator uh, Rob Ryan being let go here. What exactly is the the next step? I mean, what what were the major issues on defense that can pretend? I mean, it's, it's always tough to change scheme or anything in season. What right. do you think? Where do you think they go from here? Um, I you know the, as far as scheme goes, a lot of the biggest complaints I've heard with Ryan is that his you know packages were too complicated and uh, people were having trouble. Uh, getting the right personnel substitutions in, getting lined up in the right place. There were missed assignments. 
Uh, and, you know, I think there is, there's still some issues with the talent there for sure. And I'll get that in a second, but ultimately, you know, the major problem is, yeah, there's obviously it's a major problem that people aren't in the right place. And I think I really saw that, um, in the Tennessee game, uh, the second half, it was a combination of two things. I think that's where it really stood out to me that the defense wasn't working was that Marcus Mariota always had time to find someone open in the second half. And part of that is, I think, I think part of that is the coaching just figured out the, Tennessee's offensive coaches figured out the defensive scheme and were able to work through it. But the other part, and this is also getting back to personnel, is that there's just not enough of a pass rush right now. Um, Cameron Jordan's still playing at a real high level, and Chicago is not an elite pass rusher, but he's pretty effective when he's healthy. But beyond that, there's almost nothing, you know. Um, ironically, the defense might be a lot better if they had held on to Junior Gallat and run a 3-4 and he was still healthy, but you know, that seemed fairly impossible given the situation there and the way there seemed to be some locker room divide over him as well. Very but I think I think the biggest yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, go go ahead. continue on. I would say, I think the single biggest issue though is adding like more pass rushing help, especially along the front four. Um like I said, you know, Cameron Jordan's great. Bobby Richardson's a good player, especially for an undrafted rookie, but he's really a run stopper. He's not really providing anything in the pass rush. So either someone who can rush the passer from that other 4-3 in spot or from the inside, I think is really the biggest single need for the Saints on defense right now. Because, again, so much of even Ryan's scheme was uh, about getting pressure. And if you can't get pressure just with the standard rush, you start throwing blitzes. And when they figure those out and they don't work, you have guys wide open downfield and, and it becomes a mess. Very good. Well, Nate, appreciate you coming on today. And uh, always good to get a little New Orleans Saints talk. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely get you on again later on this season, okay? Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, as always. Definitely. Nate Pizzolato from ZoneReads.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at ZoneReads. And, Mark, what do we have uh, What do we have next on cue here? I think our next segment is another one of our favorites. It's a look inside the InsideThePylon.com glossary. If you haven't checked this out yet, you definitely should. We are putting together sort of an annotated with video glossary of football terms, all the stuff you hear on Sundays or Monday nights when you're watching the game. You hear terminology thrown around all the time. We're trying to bring that terminology to the readers, show you what a smash concept is, show you kind of what cover three is. So you, when you hear those terms, you'll know what they're talking about. Uh, it's something we're doing in conjunction with the fine folks over at the Scouting Academy and Dan Hatman. They run a great program over there. And this week's term, Chuck, it's one near and dear to your heart. It's a punt gunner. What it, is that? It, it, it definitely is one that is uh, one of my personal favorites. What a punt gunner is, if you look at how a, a typical punt unit sets up in the NFL, typically what they have is you will have a formation that has nine players in a, a tight formation, uh, usually inside the hash marks. There are essentially five linemen, two wingbacks that are about three yards behind the line of scrimmage, a personal protector about five yards back, and then you've got the punter, usually with his heels at 14 yards behind the line of scrimmage. What you also see there is on the outside of the formation, usually right outside the numbers, you have a punt gunner on each side. And this, these players, their main job, and really their only job, is to get downfield as quickly as possible and be the first line of attack against a punt returner. So they are essentially the tip of the spear for the punt coverage unit. Now this is going to be a fastball right down the middle, so I hope you do it. You know, I'm all geared up. Will, but 
what are the qualities to be a good punt gunner? And can you give us an example of an elite player in that role? Yeah, let's let's talk because there's there's really three different qualities that you need to have in order to be actually. You can kind of make a case there are four that you need to have to be elite. The the first one is you need to be incredibly quick and agile in order to get off the line cleanly. The last thing that you want to do is get held up at the line of scrimmage by a blocker, and all of a sudden you're not anywhere near the returner. So you have to be able to get a good clean release, either to the inside or the outside, doesn't really matter, but you need to be able to get a clean release and get to, and start getting downfield as quickly as possible. Second, as I mentioned, you got to get downfield quickly, speed. Second most important thing right there, you have to have speed to get downfield. Number three, you've got to be able to make a tackle. So tackling skills are at a premium here. You are going to be coming from odd angles with a significant amount of momentum. You have to have top-end tackling skills in order to be able to make a difference there. And the fourth one, and this is it's kind of a general term, and this is why I hesitate to really lump it in, and you can kind of say there's either three or four key things, but you have to have the spatial awareness to know what's going on on the field. Just because this is probably the second most chaotic play that happens in an NFL game. The number one most chaotic play being a kickoff return. Kickoff return, you've got just 11 guys running in opposite directions as fast as they can. This, you've got you know essentially 21 guys running in one direction, but you can have people blocking you from the side. You can have different types of blocks coming at you. You can have uh, you know, cross blocks, you know, straight on blocks, any kind of uh, potential scheme. And so you have to be able to recognize that, fight against those blocks, and be able to get downfield, break down, and make a tackle. So to cap this off, if you got one person to put in that role, who would it be? I've got two, okay? And the, the two that I have, the number one is probably Matthew Slater. I think that he is probably the top punt gunner in the NFL. If you watch any Patriots game, he is typically the first player downfield on any punt. He is also a player uh, that if they're in their punt block uh, setup, they'll typically use him as a key player there. Number two, Marcus Easley, also a very good player uh, in this phase of the game. I would highly recommend that you take a look at what he does as well. In particular, he's very good at getting off the line quickly, and that just gives him a pretty good edge in terms of uh, you know, really what he's able to do very fast as well. Doesn't quite have the tackling skills that someone like Slater does, but very athletic and very good in this phase of the game. So if you're looking at it from the other side of the field now, say you're a special teams coach, you're trying to set up a punt return scheme in week and you're facing a guy like Easily or Slater, what can you do to give your returner a better chance of making a good punt return? Do you put a second guy out over him? Do you try to run a wall return away from that gunner? What can you do? Generally, you'll see a guy like Slater will typically be double teamed uh, on a lot of plays. And so they will put two players on him in order to try to prevent him from getting downfield. So that's something that you can definitely see there. Uh, you will sometimes see uh, kicking units. They may kick, or rather, I'm sorry, return units. They may try to return away from the side of a strong returner. So you mentioned a wall return. That's absolutely something that you could employ there. You could also use a cross-blocking scheme where, let's say that Slater is lined up as a left gunner. You could have someone from the opposite side of the formation come in and try to ear hole him out to the left side and that's something else that you may look to see uh, if uh, you know in the event that you do have one of those strong gunners there so we're going to uh, quickly move into our next segment here now and and Mark we were supposed to have a guest on but we're still trying to get him on the line so I do want to make sure we can get through everything here 
talking about uh, some of the games that we are looking for next week, what are, what are some of the top matchups that you're looking to see here? Well, I mean, when you're looking at the schedule, obviously the game that jumps out, we talked about it already, is that uh, Packers-Vikings game. Um, kind of might be a chance to really kind of settle that NFC North division, or if not settle it, at least give us an indication of how that division is going to play out. Another game that looks to be a good one is that Sunday night game. The Bengals, they just lost to the Texans. Um, coming off that loss, they now make the trip out west to take on Arizona. Again, team we talked about that looks to be you know playing really good football right now. Those two games stand out to me. What about you? Well, I think I, I tend to agree with you, especially on that uh, Green Bay-Minnesota game. That's going to be a key game to see just who's in control of that division over the rest of this year, uh, just because obviously no one wants to be playing uh, wild card weekend if they don't have to. And if you do have the Vikings coming out at 8-2 and two after this, it potentially puts them in a pretty good position to get a first-round buy here right. uh, if, if, you're, if you're looking ahead to where playoff seeding becomes important. So we do actually now have our next guest on the line, and happy that he was able to join us here. We are joined by Emery Hunt. He is the CEO and founder of Football Game Plan, and you can follow him on Twitter at FBall Game Plan. And Emery, appreciate you taking the time today. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Definitely, and, and let's talk first just a little bit about what you do. Just to introduce you to our listeners, what are some of the major things that you focus on with your work? Um, well, the most important thing I focus on is just strictly keeping it within the, the white lines. I always like to use the, the phrase 120 by 53 and a third because to me that's what I can control. That's where my expertise lies, and that's why I just choose to focus on. So whether it be accidental breakdowns or uh, player evaluations, from the NFL all the way down to women's tackle football, that's that's where I choose to focus, and that's where we've been as a company for going on eight years now. How did you get started in this business? What was your uh, path into it? Well, you know, as a former college football player and high school coach, um, you know, you, you always have a hand in it. And, and then, you know, I jumped into corporate America, but as you're in corporate America, you realize it's not the same uh, it's not the same, I want to say, uh, enthusiasm or the, the same type feeling you get when you, let's say you make a sale or you're at the top of your game um, that you get on a football field. And, you know, like four or five years in, I'm just thinking like, man, that's something I could do to get to get back into the game. And, I've you know, I've had other coaching opportunities, this time at the collegiate level, turn those down because I'm like, oh, it's not the right fit. But that football bug was still eating away at me. And so in 2007, started a website, um, footballgameplan.com, obviously. And, we, and we, we did, what we did was we just started to slowly build on it where by the time 2012 came, I was like, you know what? I'm ready to do this full time. and ready to get it going. And, and that's where I am today. Well, that's awesome, Emery, and you do great work, and I highly recommend people check out what Emery does. And you mentioned one of the things you do, which is player evaluations. I wanted to ask you about evaluating the quarterback position. How do you approach that when you're looking at college players? What factors and traits do you look for, and what do you think is important to find in a potential college player moving to the pro level? Well, you just got to – for guys, I believe is that it's important for you to show pro-level traits. You know, and at the end of the day, there's a lot of good football players out there. Are, are there a lot of pro football players out there should be the question. I think that's where a lot of the focus doesn't go. I think a lot of times people get enamored with basic football plays. Oh, so-and-so made a, a, a good block here. So-and-so threw a good pass. Well, you're supposed to, if you're a quarterback, 
or you're, you're an offensive lineman. That's part of the job. Now, can you make those dynamic plays on a consistent basis? Can you bring your A game consistently throughout the game and throughout the course of a season and your career? And that's what you really should focus on. That's what I tend to focus on when I when I evaluate a guy. Is he bringing his A game consistently? Because to me, that's a pro player as opposed to just a good football player, which is the majority of, of guys playing college football right now. Right. A guy that you know I've looked at a little bit at the position, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you've looked at him as well, is Trevon Boykin, the TCU quarterback. He's hurt right now. There have been some reports that he might be moving positions. What are your thoughts on Trevon Boykin? Have you seen enough to make him possibly make that transition, or do you think that a wide receiver switch makes sense for him? I think he should stay a quarterback. I mean, what's funny right. is that you had, a, you had a guy in Ryan Tannehill that played receiver um, at Texas A&M, and made the switch to quarterback, played two years, and then got drafted in the first round, uh, strictly because he was tall and, and quote-unquote, looked the part. Now, with Trayvon Boykin, same situation. A guy that has played receiver, moves to quarterback, has gotten better every year. I think that's the difference right. between he and Ryan Tannehill's career. Uh, Tannehill was kind of the same guy, the same average-type player that you saw, um, that you see now at, at, with the Miami Dolphins. And with Boykin, he has gotten better. And so that also tells you that, okay, he may have some growth potential at that position. So why would you then take the growth that he has, you know, obtained as a quarterback playing in the Big 12 and now go back to him playing receiver, a position that he hasn't played for two years? He just can't pick it up and play and and be good right away. Um, So I think he can be a pro quarterback. Now, the one question I had about his game or a couple of questions I had was about him with his ball placement. uh, And those things, I think, can come in time. And you saw going from 2014 to this year, he has improved in that area. Now, has he improved to where he can be a first-round quarterback? I don't think so. But has he improved well enough to where you can say, hey, this guy should stay at this position and we can definitely get him even better than what he is now? Absolutely. So I just think that guys, and it's a shame when you see black quarterbacks get instantly thrown with the, okay, well, he can just move to another position. Well, that, that has doomed, I believe, Nick Marshall, who was in the same boat as Trayvon Boykin, had gotten better each and every year he played quarterback. And then to go to the senior bowl and be forced to switch to defensive back where he was getting roasted all week long, and rightfully so, because he's not a cornerback, even though he played DB at Georgia. But again, that's two to three years removed from him playing good quarterback in the SEC. And I just think it's unfortunate because he should have stayed at that position uh, and, and gotten better and been allowed the opportunity to fail as a quarterback before looking at other options and switching positions. Uh, a lot of the work that you do, I see you on Twitter, you're always going for a couple different games each weekend. You go to a lot of the FCS level games. You've been at a lot of Colonial Athletic Association games. In those experiences, are there some guys in that conference that have stood out to you this season? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, right now, there's too many for me to name it, but right. I will just. Um, what I've noticed this year, and not just this year, but since we've been doing this, uh, is that I think now with the, I don't know when, maybe it started like in the early 80s when they put the cap on the scholarship limit at the, at the major FBS level, or just at the FBS level, uh, it made it 85. So now you start to see guys, you start to see the spillover of talent at these lower levels. I think what also has been the big boom of talent that you see now at these at these uh, FCS to even NAIA schools is the fact that guys in now are able to watch these teams on TV. When I was growing up, 
And this is, again, I, I played college football from 99 to 02. So we're talking about the late 80s throughout the 90s. You're watching college football. The only teams you really saw on TV, you had the Jefferson Pilot SEC game of the week. Uh, I grew up in New Orleans. So you had the Jefferson Pilot SEC game of the week. You had maybe a Florida State game, a Miami game, and that late night West Coast game, which could be either USC, UCLA, or even Air Force at times, right? Um, but now kids can pop on TV. Kids can turn on their on the Internet and watch a Louisiana Lafayette play or, or watch, a, you know, a, a Appalachian State or a Georgia Southern or even a, a Hobart play football, you know, and get a good idea of what the school, that the school exists. You know, um, so I think that's a great thing, which is why you're starting to see a ton of talent throughout college football. You know, yes, the, the, F, the FBS level, the major level is going to have the majority, but you're going to see some guys like I've seen this year on, on my uh, travels. A lot of these guys can play like the Ivy League. I was very impressed this year with the talent level, top to bottom on both sides of the ball, coming out of the Ivy League this year. I think that's a really good conference, despite not being able to offer athletic scholarships. One last thing, and we got to let you go, Emery. I know you're doing something this weekend that's near and dear to my heart as a former D3 player. You're doing something with the ECAC. Tell us about that and where we can check that out. Well, I'm excited about that. Um, this is the ECAC uh, Football Bowl Championships. They're going to be held November 20th through 22nd. Um, and all all six games, and it's impressive, all six games will be at uh, Jackaroo Stadium on the campus of Central Connecticut State, um, and it will be broadcast live through the PAC Network so people can go online and just pull up the, the live broadcast, and they'll see me in the booth doing color commentary for all six games. And um, I think it's going to be great, man. There's some great matchups here. you got Buffalo State and RPI, a really good football team. Carnegie Mellon is playing Bridgewater State. Um, you know, WPI and Kane is playing as well. So there's a lot of great matchups. And, I, and I'm enjoying doing these things. This, this will be my, I think, 10th or 11th uh, color commentary um, gig this year. Uh, and it's been a great thing to, to be a part of, and I'm glad I'm a, I'm a part of the ECAC uh, championships this, this week. Outstanding. Well, Emery, appreciate you coming on, and definitely we'll be checking out your work later on this year, and we'll definitely have you back on uh, as we get into draft season as well, all right? I appreciate that, guys. Keep chopping wood. All right. Have a good one. Emery Hunt from Football Game Plan. You can follow him on Twitter at F-Ball Game Plan. And, Mark, we are uh, just about out of time for the day. And, unfortunately, no Adele or Taylor Swift, but we do have to uh, get moving, I guess, yeah? Yeah, no Adele, no Taylor Swift, but a little teaser for next week's episode. Well, obviously, the holidays are rolling up. Next week, we're going to have the first ever Chuck and Mark's Thanksgiving Day Tips. Help you guys get through that holiday. Should be fun. Look forward to that. Chuck, always a pleasure, my friend. Always is. We will be getting our Martha Stewart on next week. Until then, follow us on Twitter at ITPylon. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash inside the pylon. Keep reading everything at insidethepylon.com. We'll see you next week.